we are coming to a close in our series on gospel worship. Where we kind of have walked through the reality that God is seeking worshipers, that we have rejected him, and that really all of our lives, having received the gospel, is intended to be a response in worship to Jesus. Not just for what he's done for us and saving us, but for what he's yet to do as we rejoice in the blessings that are to come. As we rejoice in hope, not only have it, but actually celebrate in it. We've seen practically kind of how that plays out somewhat in the life of an individual local church and the decisions that we make about things like song selection and style and format and tried to keep this thing as straightforward as possible. We're coming to a close here and I think it's important to talk about worship as our eternal calling. That worship isn't just a temporal reality. In fact, most of what we do in this life is something that is here today and then gone tomorrow. Yet, worship before the eternal God of heaven is actually what we will do forever. And when I say that, immediately some of you go, that doesn't sound all that awesome. And so before we even begin to talk about worship in heaven, I think we need to talk about heaven more generally and what the Bible means when it uses the word heaven. So maybe we could begin with the popular images we have of heaven. And most of us, if you just jump to that in popular culture, uh, it's this idea that heaven is someplace kind of above the clouds. And that uh, when we die, we go there. Uh, and some people in popular culture have this strange idea that we become angels, uh, which, which basically in their perspective means we become chubby babies with wings. And so um, the, the weight gain that I've had the last few years is really just preparation for heaven um, because I'm still not quite chubby enough. But that doesn't sound exciting. If you look at, if you just look at image searches of angels, most of them are either blonde little girls or, or fat babies. And I don't want to be either. No offense to either category. I have a chubby baby and a blonde girl in my home. I love them both. I just don't want to be one. So if you're selling heaven to me and that's the image, I'm not buying. Some people, when we talk about the eternity of worship, go like, really? Church all day forever. Because, I mean, I think we're kind of lively here. But all day? Forever? It almost makes me think of the movie The Sandlot when they go, forever. That's a long church service. Even with me preaching, that's a long church service. Maybe you get a harp, maybe you don't, and you sit on a cloud, which we all know isn't possible because I'm no, I'm no physics expert, but my understanding is that clouds are essentially condensed water vapor. You can't sit on them. And yet, this is the kind of the depictions that we have of heaven. Is it's, it's some spiritual reality that is kind of vague, honestly not all that appeasing, but lasts forever. And because of that, I think we, we tend to walk with a lack of joy and worship for what God has offered us because we don't understand the gift that he's presenting. I'm going to put it to you this way. Uh, when I graduated seminary, we were what all seminary students are, which is dirt poor. So like a nice restaurant, a nice outing to us would be, like we lived in Greenville, so really there wasn't a nice place to go. So it was okay that we didn't have any money because there was nowhere you wanted to go. Uh, and so mom and dad, uh, upon graduating seminary, they took us out uh, to this place, Fogo de Chao, which has been around a while, but at the time was relatively new. And if you haven't been there, one, you should go. And two, um, it's like a big meat extravaganza, right? Uh, these guys in funny pants walk around 
and they have like 15, 16 different cuts of meat and they just kind of serve it up. Now, on our way to Fogodishau to have like the, the great carnivore celebration, um, we drove past lots of places that served food. Uh, we drove by a McDonald's where they do not serve meat. We drove by Burger King. We drove by Taco Cabell. Taco Bell. We drove by Taco Cabana. And we didn't stop at any of those. I wasn't interested in, in any of that stuff because I was going to something I knew was better. I knew, even though I hadn't been there, right? Even though I couldn't fully envision what having 16 different cuts of meat available at the drop of a hat would be like. I didn't, I wasn't interested in any of those things. Because in my mind, I said, this is going to be awesome. When we have this depiction of heaven that is so small and unattractive, it does not entice us to miss out on things that might offer smaller amounts of gratification in this life. It doesn't embolden us to greater commitment to serve God with our entire lives. It doesn't create in us a stirring of passion when we gather to worship because in the end, our final destination doesn't seem all that exceptional. So what I want us to talk about today before we get into a depiction of worship in heaven is just to talk a little bit about heaven itself because I think we are dangerously short-sighted about what heaven is. If you're to go back centuries, the classic Christian hope is not that we get to float up on the clouds, but rather that Jesus returns and that the dead are raised and that the kingdom of God is established. That's the classic Christian hope. Now, it, it kind of got infiltrated to some degree and we begin to talk about this idea of I'll fly away, oh glory. That we're going to exit and go somewhere and that, that, that heaven was some other place that in our spirits we would go. And, and there's reason to have that belief. So when we gather together to celebrate the life of someone who has passed and grieve together, we remind ourselves that, that the Bible does say to be absent by us, be present with the Lord. So there's this, this sense in which life after death is a spiritual reality where those who have trusted in Christ go to heaven to be with the Lord. But that's temporary. That's not the eternal kind of setting that God has laid out. What we want to look at today is what the theologian N.T. Wright is called life after life after death. The true biblical hope of what eternity will be. And so I want to begin with this simple statement is that heaven is not just a place that we go spiritually, but is rather depicted in the Bible as a physical reality. It is a physical experience. I want you to look at 1 Thessalonians Chapter 4. We're going to be in verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. That you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So I want you to kind of look at this. This is where it begins. 
is this idea that those who have died, who have trusted in Christ, are with the Lord. So he doesn't want them to be uninformed, say, okay, if you if you lost your mom, you lost your brother, you lost someone you dearly love, eh? he doesn't want you to be ignorant and, and, and to grieve as someone who doesn't have a hope beyond the death and the pain, that there's a reason for hope in the midst of grief because those who have died, who have trusted in Christ, are with him, right? If they're coming with him, they must presently be with him. And I want you to go with me now to 2 Corinthians, which will kind of complete the image that you get here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 1. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we will have a building from God, not a house made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, that we will not be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared for us this very thing is God, who has given us His Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So I, w- I want you to see what's, what's playing out here. Is he saying, look, we're going to, if we die, right, absent from the body, we'll be present with the Lord. He said, but that's really not what we're shooting for. He uses the analogy of us living in a tent. And he says, look, this earthly tent that we live in is a difficult life, right? We have the war of our own sin nature, the war of our bodies decaying and letting us down and not doing what they ought to do, hurting in ways we didn't expect them to hurt. All of these kind of daily experience of life. He says, but our groaning isn't that we would not have a physical body, is it? He said, it's not, our groaning isn't that we would be unclothed or, or disembodied spiritual beings. That's not what our spirits are longing for. They're longing to be clothed with the body that is perfect and glorified. So there, there is this clear truth that those who die, we bury their bodies in the ground and their spirit goes to heaven to be with God. That, that's clearly biblical. But that's not the end of it, is it? You notice that even in that sense, that the, the spirit is not comfortable in this disembodied state. There's groaning not to be disembodied, not to be clothed with physical reality, but rather to have what is intended. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the depiction of the resurrection is very important. In verse 42. Just turn to the left a little bit. It says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. That which is sown in dishonor is raised in glory. Sown in weakness, raised in power. So I want you to see the imagery of 1 Corinthians. It's that of a seed being planted. He says, that which is put in the ground will come out of the ground. Also tells us that the resurrection of the dead follows the pattern of Jesus. Jesus is referred to several times in scripture as the firstborn from the dead or the first fruits of the resurrection. And so the body that is buried is the body that is raised, but it's raised in a different state. So there's a lot that we don't know about the resurrection of the dead. There's a lot that blanks that we can't fill in. There's a lot of questions about heaven that we, that we can't answer. But here's what we can say. 
is that it is God's intention not just to take us to heaven when we die, but at the return of Jesus to demonstrate victory over death by raising those who have died from the dead in the likeness of Jesus. That is the Christian hope. It is not simply that when we die, we get to go to heaven and exit this planet. It is rather that Jesus will return and that those bodies, the very ones that were placed in the ground by the mighty power of God, will be raised up. He says, but they were put there in weakness and they'll be raised in power. They were put there in dishonor, but they'll be raised in glory. And the pattern of that is the very glory of Jesus when he rose. So I want to lay out the hope of heaven is not us chilling on the clouds playing a harp. It is not us floating around as spirits somehow in heaven, although that's a short term solution. The eternal state of heaven when Jesus returns and establishes his kingdom is a physical reality in which we are raised from the dead and that the spirit that had been with God in heaven for those who have deceased is reunited with the body that is raised in power and glory. It's the hope of the resurrection from the dead. So much so that from the earliest beginnings of Christianity, this is part of it, the end of the Apostles' Creed, I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Essential to to the Christian hope has been this understanding of a physical resurrection of Jesus as the first fruits of the physical resurrection of all of those who would trust him and everlasting life in heaven as a physical experience. So what will it be like? It's God purging creation, establishing his kingdom with the reign of Jesus on earth and us living in it. And so like this 1 Corinthians 10.31 idea of whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, doing it to the glory of God will become an increasingly present reality in our lives when our sin is removed and we're given a glorious body to live in. So a physical experience living out our lives for eternity in the presence and joy of Christ for his glory in all that we do. Again, there's a lot we don't know. I'll tell you a few other things we do know about heaven. In Ephesians chapter 2, as the scriptures lay out for us the plan of salvation and God's goodness to us, in chapter four, chapter 2, verse 4, we get a depiction of what eternity will be like. It says, Even as He chose us in Him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace in which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have the redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Listen to this. According to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose. We flip to chapter 2 now. In verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness to us in Christ Jesus. 
So we see all that God has done for us, saved us, redeemed us, cleansing us by His blood, so that when the eternal state comes, that for ages and ages He can lavish His grace upon us. You see that? He's redeemed us, He's drawn us to Him, so that in the coming ages, the Greek word is where we get the word eons. For years and years and years and years and years. For as long as you can imagine. Forever to pour out His love and grace upon us. So whatever your depiction of heaven is, I want you to understand it is not some static environment where we go because God has blessed us. It is rather a physical reality where we live and breathe for His glory, enjoying His creation and His constant, continual outpouring of grace upon us. It's not like we just get perfect and it's done and now we just hang out in perfect land. God cleanses us of our sin. He makes us holy and blameless before Him. And yet even then, just continually pouring out grace upon grace upon grace, lavishing it upon us for eons and eons. So I can't, and I can't tell you what it's like. I'm not an artist. I can't draw you a picture of it. But whatever it is, it's far better than we imagine. Whatever God's grace has been like here, expound on that exponentially. Is good. Because of that, we never run out of reasons to praise Him. We never have to look too far for a reason to rejoice and praise God, our King and Savior. Because He's constantly pouring out His grace and love upon us. And in an unending overwhelming fashion, except there, because of God's grace to us, taking our sin from us, we rejoice in those gifts as we should. Because you and I, in this kind of world that we live in, with the sin nature that we haul around, sometimes we're just ungrateful little knots. And God's giving us good things and good things and good things. And and we don't even stop to thank Him or to show gratitude or to praise Him. And as God purifies our hearts, then He keeps pouring out His love upon us. And then we have a reason to worship because not only do we receive good things from Him, but our hearts have been tuned to Him so we begin to understand that He gave it to us and that we didn't deserve it. And we rejoice all the more. Because He's good. Because we're undeserving. And because His goodness is unending. So heaven's a physical reality. It's the continual experience of God outpouring His grace upon those who are undeserving. And it's the continual growth in our understanding of God and His creation. There's a few little texts I want you to look at. Rome is Romans chapter eleven thirty four. Where Paul is just, he's gone through the whole plan of salvation. He's just blown away by God. And he stops to just offer praise to God. And this is his praise. He says, for who has known the mind of the Lord? And who has been his counselor? That God's wisdom, God's insight is infinite and beyond our understanding. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 3, you get a very similar phrase. He said, talking about Christ, he said, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So I want you to understand this. That in God is an infinite amount of understanding, wisdom, and knowledge. And that embedded into the world He created is a limitless search and quest for understanding of who God is. And so whatever heaven is like, it is the constant exploration of God, His goodness, His wisdom, His mercy. 
It's the constant growth in our understanding of who He is and who we are and in His created world. A world where, where we do have tasks, where we reign with Him, so there's activity and involvement, but we do it without the curse of sin, without the toil that He brings, with great joy and satisfaction. I, I, I imagine the joy of being someone who loves science and biology when Jesus returns and the constant exploration of God's creation and understanding in that complexity and in that unending quest for knowledge, the greatness of our God. It's as if we're climbing a mountain as we get to, to one peak, we see there's another great and beautiful peak in the clouds above. And as we rise to that one and understanding for eternity, seeking, growing, learning more of God and rejoicing all all the more in Him. This is a much greater image than hanging out on a cloud with a harp in a diaper. So whatever heaven's like, I, I can't oversell it. I, I can't tell you it's so good that you would be able to wrap your mind around. I don't have words for it. This three pounds of meat between my ears can't comprehend how good heaven is. But what we know is that it is a real experience where God establishes His kingdom and the new heavens, the new earth. And we explore and celebrate Him forever. And He pours out His grace on us, undeserving men and women, forever. Because of that, we'll never run out of reasons to worship Him. We'll never run out because we'll discover something we knew and we'll go, wow, God is amazing that He hardwired everything this way. God's wisdom is so far above us. And He'll continue to shower us with blessing and we'll say, God is so good. We're so undeserving. His mercies are infinite. They're new every morning. They're new every minute. And so there'll be, I imagine, just constant kind of spontaneous expressions of praise. Like you don't have to schedule a worship gathering because we're all there and God's doing amazing things and we're all aware of it. And so we just burst into moments of praise and worship. So it's an eternity of praising Him, yes. But it's not eternity of sitting in a worship service. That's not the depiction of the Bible. In fact, the Bible says there's no temple there. Well, does that mean people won't gather for worship? Does that mean corporate worship ends and we just go do our own thing? No, it doesn't. When you read the book of Revelation, you'll find that more than any other book in the New Testament, the book of Revelation talks about worship. So I want to lay this out for you. The book of the Bible that communicates more than anything God's plan for eternity is the book of the Bible that depicts corporate worship more than any other book of the Bible in the New Testament. So it's obvious just from that that there's a hint here that, that gathering together for praise is going to be something we do forever. I want you to see... One of the depictions in Revelation 22. One of the things that happens in Revelation as you read through it is, one, you get confused. The other thing is if you pay attention, you'll notice something. Is that there is constant worship in what the Bible calls heaven. And so in the place that God reigns and dwells. And, and that, that's where worship occurs, where the saints gather there before his throne. But in Revelation 22, the scene shifts, and now worship is not taking a place somewhere else, but rather has come to earth as heaven has come crashing into earth with the return of Christ. In Revelation chapter 22, 
verse 1. The angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal and flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face. His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. And they will need no lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever. So I want you to see a few things about the depiction of the new heavens and the new earth when Jesus returns. One is that we talked about this last week. The nations will praise him. All the families on the earth will be there and through the tree of life they'll receive healing. You see that? That there'll be eternal life and healing for the nations. And the second thing I want you to see is that the saints will worship him. Not the saints like, like someone has their face on a candle, but everyone who's ever known Christ and trusted in him, the saints will praise him forever. And so, yes, we will gather. This is a collective vision that's depicted of the people of God coming together, praising his name. And they will be his servants and they will worship him. And God will be for us what the Son is. He'll provide our warmth and it's by him that we will have light. And by him that we will walk. And it's him that will keep us safe and protect us. We will worship and serve him together forever. Worship is very important. It's very important because we're always doing it. We established that at the beginning, is that we are continuously, constantly outpouring into something. It's part of who we are, that we give our lives, our strength, and our vitality to something all the time. Be it our own comfort, our own uh, goals, building our own kingdom, whether it's our career or our children, whatever it is. We're always pouring our lives out into something. And so worship is important because it's a constant. But not only is it a constant here, it's an eternal calling for us as Christians. And I want you to see one of the greatest blessings that we get when Jesus returns. And this is so important to understanding true worship. In Revelation 22, he tells us there was nothing accursed there. Everything that was tainted by sin, one of two things happened. It was either removed or it was purified. And what do you mean? We recognize that all of life is ultimately tainted by sin for us. So God has given us good gifts and, and we tend to twist them and misuse them and, and pervert them and, and then they become wicked. It's not so much that the thing is bad, it's that our use of it is bad or that, that its place in our lives has taken an inappropriate priority. So God has given us food for our enjoyment and to sustain us, but to eat and, and, and live for food is, is not an honoring thing. And you can run that with anything. He says, so, so everything that was 
affected by sin. It's either removed or cleansed and made whole. And so this is the beautiful thing about that. Because I know myself. And I know that throwing me in an environment where those things that draw me to them as lesser loves are still present, I would be prone to fall. And God in His great goodness to us takes transforms our hearts and takes away everything that entices us to worship other than himself. And so we praise him forever. Because he has taken away from us the curse of sin. Because he has taken away from us all of the effects of sin on our own lives, and our own hearts, and our families around us. Whether it's sickness or or broken relationships, all of that. In an instant at His return, He's transformed so that we worship Him in purity of thought and in purity of motive with no lesser loves. So that we receive good things from Him. We don't rejoice in the gift alone. We celebrate the gift and we worship the giver rather than our tendency to receive the gift and worship it. God's good. And let me just say this. One of the things that I pray for my own heart and that I pray for you is that God would be doing this work even now in our own lives. That God would be at work by His Spirit taking those lesser loves from us so that we can experience Him with great joy. Whatever it is that's keeping us from from praising Him and worshiping, from rejoicing in Him, that God would begin to either take that from us or to transform our hearts so that we no longer place it in His role. But guys, we're going to worship Him forever. And if I can say anything today, it is this, is that whatever we've depicted heaven to be, it is far better than we could describe. And and that reality, that there is something waiting for us in eternity where God lavishes His love in an unending way on us undeserving men and women should drive us to praise Him with greater passion today. Should drive us to live with faithfulness to Him today. Because we know that at the end of this road, something is coming that is so much better than everything this world can offer. And that moment, then we understand what the Bible says to rejoice in hope. Because while we don't have that yet, it is coming and we praise God for the hope that He has given us. And so we worship Him. We worship Him with whole hearts because of what He's done for us, because of who He is and what He has promised to do for us that we've yet to receive in Him. And because of that, we never run dry on reasons to praise Him. And more than anything else, as Christians... We are defined by the fact that we worship Jesus. More than our morality, more than our care and concern for others, all of those are important. But the defining reality for a Christian is that we worship Jesus as Lord. Everything else flows from that. May we be a people of constant, unending, passionate praise of Jesus who saved us. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your infinite goodness to us. Lord, when we say infinite, we don't just mean in the past when you sent your son to die for us, although that is beyond what we can fathom, that that you didn't stop there proclaiming us not guilty and simply spare us from judgment. 
but that you spared us from judgment, brought us into your family, and then promised us an inheritance in the kingdom in which you will raise our lifeless bodies from the dead and you will give us renewed and glorified bodies in which you will transform our hearts from the inside out to make us holy and spotless before you, to purge us of those lesser loves so that we might truly enjoy what you have to give us. And then having set us in that amazing position, you give us the promise of the coming ages for eons and eons pouring out your grace upon us. Lord, we can't even imagine what that looks like, but we know it is beyond our wildest dreams. Lord, I pray that you would raise our eyes towards the hope of heaven and that that would drive us towards continual, constant praise with our lips and our lives. Lord, I pray, though, that those that are here today that have not trusted in Christ, that they would see the hope that lies before them and that they would be drawn to him with great joy, turning from their sin and to your son, our only savior who died and rose again. Lord, we pray that this time of worship would not only be pleasing to you, but would encourage and strengthen us as your children and prepare us for eternity with you. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.